Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. It may be helpful for us tonight to get the most out of our Lent to briefly consider its historical development. The Apostles, if you didn't know, they didn't happen to have 3,000 copies of a liturgical wall calendar on the day of Pentecost, um, ready to hand out to all the new converts, that first wave of the first church. The development of the feast days and the liturgical seasons and the commemorations that we now refer to as our liturgical calendar, of course, has developed over time. And one of the first feasts to be celebrated besides Sunday, which was always the Lord's Day, was a yearly commemoration of the resurrection, Pascha or Easter. Soon after this feast was established in the church, it became obvious that this was a good time to baptize new converts. What better time than on the day, the yearly celebration of the Lord's resurrection? Well, at the same time, it seemed prudent to maybe have a time of preparation for those who were going to be baptized. They needed to get ready for this momentous occasion in their life. And so the church began to sort of back up from from Easter and develop a time of preparation for these converts preparing to be baptized. Now, many of these folks were coming out of pretty severe demonic paganism, and they needed extensive preparation to enter into the church. And this preparation consisted not just of teaching, but even more importantly, you might be surprised that they went through daily exorcism throughout this time. And the bishop pronounced exorcisms over there. And they went through this period, this deep period of repentance, taking stock of their lives and preparing to enter the kingdom of God. It was a very serious and intense time period. Well, as time went on in the church, this season of repentance and preparation for these new converts also became a special time of repentance for those Christians who were maybe not in full communion with the church because of some grave sin in their life. They were, there were classes, actually, in the church of these people. They were known as weepers and kneelers because they wept throughout the church and they had to stay in the back and they actually couldn't even stay in for the central part of the Mass. They had to go out. Uh, But they were weepers and kneelers. They were basically not in full communion even though they were Christians because of grave sin in in their life. So the season before Pascha and Easter, it was a special time of repentance, first for the catechumens who were going to be baptized and enter the church, And then also next for those Christians who were out of communion because of grave sin. Well, the next step seemed obvious, wise, and prudent. Why not have the whole Christian community join in and take advantage of this season as a time of personal and corporate repentance and also a time to sort of shore up our spiritual lives. And so everyone in the Christian community joined with these weepers and kneelers and with these catechumens in this preparatory time before Easter. Now any of you that has, so it's really about 
coming back to Christ. And we all need to come back to Christ really on a daily basis. We need to be converted every day. And Lent, we need to be converted every week. And we need to be converted every year. And Lent is this special time for all of us to make our return to Christ in those areas of our life, to shore up. Now anybody who has seriously engaged the Lenten season for, you know, especially I think for a few years or more, does not need to be convinced of its value. But the more cycles of the church year and of Lent that you go through, the deeper the appreciation for what this season can mean for your life. More clarity comes about what's happening during these six weeks and how you can better and more wisely and prudently engage with the different aspects of this season. It's a learned discipline. It's not something you just do perfectly the first time. You get better at it. You know, you get better at confession, too. You get better at these things as you do them more. So I want to touch just on a few things that are important for us to grasp in this season. But before I do, I want to read a very brief quote by Robert Wilkin, who is a professor down at UVA. He said, there is great wisdom in the maligned phrase, ex apere operato. The effect is in the doing. The effect is in the doing. He says, intention is like a reed blowing in the wind. It's in the doing that counts. And if we do something for God, in the doing, God does something for us. Well, let me make a few observations about the fast. Um, there is nothing intrinsically holy about not eating. God gave us food to eat, and we should eat and enjoy eating. We fast for a greater purpose. But if we don't engage in the, engage in the greater purpose of our fast, we don't understand why we're fasting, and we just fast for fasting's sake, we're going to miss out, really miss out on the benefit of fasting. And, and some people have pointed out fasting can actually be dangerous, even spiritually dangerous, if we don't engage in these other aspects. We fast in order to give our attention to other things other than food, not to give more attention to food, which actually happens quite often during the fast. As I've pointed out before, you know, we, we spend hours and hours trying to figure out how to make tofu taste like prime rib uh, during the fast. That's sort of missing the whole point. So my advice to you is, you know, figure out what you're going to eat through this fast and then stop thinking about it and stop talking about it for the most part. You know, I mean, if you want to share a Lenten recipe with your friend, that's fine. But, you know, don't spend too much time thinking and talking about your fasting and about the food. Just do it. We fast also to tame the bodily appetites. These appetites of our body, since the fall, they control us, they drag us around, they demand comfort and pleasure. And a constant seeking of comfort and pleasure blinds, blinds our spiritual eyes and ears to the more meaningful and quite frankly, satisfying things in life. Now when you get fast, surprise, surprise, it's possible that you could get hungry. People are always shocked by this. Father, I'm so hungry when I fast. And I'm tired 
and I'm even a little irritable. Well, that's the whole point of the fast, I remind them. The point is, you know, that we are to put ourselves in a position where our bodily discomfort, where we are harnessing and taking control of our body and not letting our body control us, but this bodily discomfort and mental effect is supposed to prompt us to think about our hunger for God. When we feel the pangs of hunger, we are to think and to turn our hearts towards God and searching for the eternal things, the kingdom of God. Also, fasting makes us lighter. And when we learn to ignore the discomfort, it actually helps us to pray. Now, this is a tricky one, because when you begin to fast, you're so distracted by your discomfort that you might find it more difficult to pray. But as you fast over time, and sometimes this can, I don't mean over like days, I mean maybe over a year, it's something that you grow in the knowledge of how to do this. You will find that if you make fasting a regular discipline of your life, that it really does enable you to pray more profoundly. And you will be more spiritually sensitive. Fasting puts us in the right frame of mind to become aware of our besetting sins, you know, to take stock of ourselves. It helps us to see more clearly so that we can repent of these things. Fasting is also, importantly, a sacrificial offering to God. I think that's probably the most strange thing for most modern people um, to understand. But fasting is an offering to God. It is an expression of our love for God. It is a means by which we offer ourselves to Christ. Fasting should be used to help us get our attention off of ourselves completely and to begin to think of and serve and intercede for other people. Now that might sound a little contradictory given what I just said about fasting so that you can be aware of your own sins, but there is a very healthy way to be reflective without being self-obsessed. So fasting helps deliver us from self-obsession. If you've ever gone through Lent and focused all your attention on fasting, though, and failed, as I said, to do the other things, which is fasting is there to help us do, then you are aware at the end of the season you've pretty much squandered it and really missed out what Lent's all about. The great fast of Lent, that's what it's referred to sometimes, the great fast of Lent must be accompanied by prayer, by prayer and giving. Let me say a little something now about the ashes that we use on this Ash Wednesday. First, God's people have been using ashes religiously for thousands of years, long before the Christian religion. The Jews used ashes in several related ways. They used ashes first as a reminder of their mortality, which was an expression of humility, a recognition that they are contingent creatures in relation to the eternal God and Creator. Secondly, they used ashes for penance along with sackcloth. You read in the scriptures about sackcloth and ashes and the act of repentance and pleading for God's mercy for our sins, both personal and corporate sins. And thirdly, ashes were used 
in intercession to God for mercy and deliverance from someone's enemies. And very often on the behalf of someone else. Esther did this and Daniel did this. Our faith, the Christian religious religion, we are, we say, the fulfillment of Judaism. And many of the Jewish rites and ceremonies and language and architecture and vestments and all of these things from Judaism, they weren't abandoned or done away with by the church. They were transformed. They were realized and their true and full meaning in the church. There's too many examples to list. But perhaps we could think of the ashes that we use on Ash Wednesday and compare them to the use of incense. Incense was used by the Jews and incense is used in the church. Maybe we could compare the ashes to the incense. The symbolism of ashes goes all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And it's a reference when God is telling Adam the consequences of his sin. God tells Adam that the ground, the very earth, has been cursed because of his sin, because Adam broke the fast, and he ate the forbidden fruit, and God says that his eating from now on, all of Adam's eating, all the days of your life, he says, will be in sorrow. Adam's eating, all the days of your life, will be in sorrow. He says, through thorns and thistles and sweat and toil and pain, Adam will eat. I don't know if you've ever paid that much attention how much the curse is focused on Adam's eating. And of course, Adam's sin was to break the fast. God said, do not eat, and Adam ate. God gave Adam a fast, and Adam broke the fast. And then the curse surrounds Adam's eating. His eating will be painful. And maybe it will prolong his life a little bit, but in the end, he's going to return to the dust from which he came. So even eating, which is supposed to sustain our life, is not going to sustain our life. There will be no life in the food that Adam eats from now on. He is still going to return to the dust. And God says, for dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Those are the words you heard tonight at the imposition of ashes on your forehead. Remember, O man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. The very root of ashes is our mortality, a sign of our mortality, the curse of sin, which is death. But I want to focus tonight our meditation on one word from this line and this phrase, and perhaps it's the key word which reveals the essence of the sin and the essence of the remedy. And that word is the word remember. The emphasis is on remember. Remember, O man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. Why remember? Well, because the essence of Adam's sin is that he forgot himself. He forgot what he was in relation to his Creator. As noble and dignified and beautiful as he was, he forgot that his very existence, his very self, was absolutely conditional and dependent every moment on the gratuitous and ecstatic love of God's creative power. Adam had no life in himself. 
He had no existence in Himself. He is not the source of anything eternal or life-giving. He has received and is receiving everything in every moment from another source who is His loving God. And that's what Adam forgot. Adam's negligence was taken advantage of by our ancient foe. And that negligence became fertile ground for the full flowering of pride in which Adam assumed that he was his own source of life and beauty and happiness. He forgot God. He became his own God in his mind. And that poisoned the fountain of love between God and man. And as a result, man was plunged and the whole creation was plunged into death. That is sin. It's really the only sin. It's the essence of every sin. It's the ongoing battle that we all face which perpetuates our failure to love God. Our failure to offer ourselves to Him in sacrifice and worship without reservation. So if we take anything away from tonight with these ashes on our foreheads, may we take away this. This remembrance. This remembrance, may it be seared upon us. It is marked upon us tonight. This remembrance. To regain what Adam has lost. The recognition of our total and utter dependence upon God for everything. This really is the secret, the simple secret of the Christian life. When the Bible talks about the fear of God, by the way, Psalm 103 in our Vespers service tonight, essentially, that's what Psalm 103 is about. That's what I'm saying right here. It's the recognition of our total and utter dependence upon God for everything, our life and our existence, and to respond to this knowledge appropriately. Not for any other reason than that this is the only response possible when you come to know the truth. And that is to worship Him with our bodies, our minds, our souls, our hearts, everything that we have to give ourselves to Him in adoration, to remember Him in every moment, through every joy and every pain, to be filled with the knowledge of the love of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.